Psalm 84, the one on which John will preach. Um, Psalm 84, while you're getting to it, it's titled, My Soul Longs for the Courts of the Lord, and it's to the choir master according to the Gittith, a psalm of the sons of Korah. Psalm 84. How lovely is your dwelling place, O Lord of hosts. My soul longs, yes, faints for the courts of the Lord. My heart and my flesh sing for joy to the living God. Even the sparrow finds a home and the swallow a nest for herself, where she may lay her young. At your altars, O Lord of hosts, my King and my God. Blessed are those who dwell in your house, ever singing your praise. Blessed are those whose strength is in you, in whose heart are the highways to Zion. As they go through the valley of Baca, they make it a place of springs. The early rain also covers it with pools. They go from strength to strength. Each one appears before God in Zion. O Lord God of hosts, hear my prayer. Give ear, O God of Jacob. Behold our shield, O God. Look on the face of your anointed. For a day in your courts is better than a thousand elsewhere. I would rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than dwell in the tents of wickedness. For the Lord God is a sun and a shield. The Lord bestows favour and honour. No good thing does he withhold from those who walk uprightly. O Lord of hosts, blessed is the one who trusts in you. Amen. So before John comes to preach on that psalm. Well, it is a great privilege to be back here at Grove this morning, and I'm grateful to your pastor for giving me that privilege. Uh, I was here almost exactly a year ago uh, on, I think, your 199th anniversary, and now I've been promoted to the position of John the Baptist, preparing for the 200th anniversary next week. My wife, uh, Pam, and I hope to be with you for part of that weekend, although our plans aren't uh, set in concrete yet, so we're not quite sure when that will be. But I'm certain we want to be with you, if only to take advantage of Stephen's cooking. So uh, we'll hope to be with you uh, then. Some years ago, I was invited by the editor of a weekly, or month, excuse me, a monthly Christian magazine or newspaper to write an article under the overall title, My Text. And the idea was very simple. Various authors were asked in the course of several months to contribute an article which could properly be titled in that way. I accepted the invitation immediately, but soon found that I had as great a problem as I had a privilege. After, at that stage, decades of reading and studying the Bible, being asked to choose out of all of Scripture, of all of the 66 books, uh, one text that in particular had meant so much to me at the time of my conversion or as I was maturing in the Christian faith or called into the Christian ministry or exercising such a ministry, what could I fix my attention to as being my text. It could so easily have been, as it would be for many people, uh, Proverbs 3, verses 5 and 6, trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not 
unto your own understanding and all your ways acknowledge him and he would direct your paths. It could so easily have been that. It could so easily have been uh, Ephesians 2 and verse 8, which began to mean a great deal to me as soon as I came to faith in Christ. By grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. Uh, It could so easily have been any verse from the letter of James, which uh, some people would say has almost been an obsession with me over the years. I have certainly spent uh, several thousand hours studying those five chapters, so it could have been any verse from the letter of James, but perhaps uh, chapter 1 and verse 18 of his own will begat he us with the word of truth that we should be a kind of fourth fruits, uh, first fruits of his uh, creatures. It could certainly have been in Exodus chapter 4 and verse 12, the verse which uh, God very uh, dramatically and unexpectedly called me uh, against all odds uh, to give up my position in the civil service in Guernsey and to become a full-time preacher. Now, therefore, go, and I will be with your mouth and teach you what you shall say. It could have been any of the above, but I suspect that you suspect it was none of them, and you would be absolutely right. Instead, it would be the very last words and really only part of a verse uh, from the scripture we had read to us a few moments ago at the end of Psalm 84, where God is described as a sun and shield, uh, the psalmist adds these words, no good thing will he withhold from those whose walk is blameless, or as you have it in the ESV, those who walk uprightly. And I would dare to say some years since that article was written, that that probably would still be in my mind, of all the scriptures I have read and studied over the years, my text. No good thing will he, that is God, withhold from those whose walk is blameless or who walk uprightly. And I want you to notice with me this morning three things that we see as clear as daylight in that particular statement. And the first, notice with me that there is sovereignty here. There is sovereignty here. Uh, People have uh, interesting views about the sovereignty of God. Uh, If someone were to ask me, um, where in the Bible would I find a verse that speaks about the sovereignty of God? This would be my advice. I would say, take your Bible like this, let it fall open, and wherever it falls, somewhere on that page, or those two pages, you would find a verse which directly or indirectly would point at least point to the sovereignty of God. And of course, it is here. Because when the psalmist says, no good thing will he withhold, the inference, more than the inference, is that God does give or withhold. But the giving or the withholding of the good things, which we'll consider later, are in his hands. He has the right and the honor of doing whatever he chooses. God has the sovereign right, moved by nothing but his own nature and his own will and purposes to bring about that which he chooses so to do. Now, my question is, uh, do you really believe that? Do you really believe that God not only has the right to exercise his will, not only has the right to do those things, 
that will be for our good if we are in a certain position, and we'll come to that uh, towards the end. Uh, do you really believe that God not only has that right, and here's the important thing, but that he exercises that right? It is possible to settle uh, for the truth, true though it is, uh, settle for the truth that God is sovereign. Uh, and to say, yes, God is sovereign over everything uh, in the entire universe. There's not a molecule that moves except out of God's, uh, outside of God's good and pleasing and perfect will. But it is possible, strange as it may seem to say it, uh, to settle for the fact that God is sovereign and to go no further. What I want uh, to bring us to believe and to commit ourselves to this morning is not only that God has the right to do those things that are pleasing in his sight, but that he exercises that right. He does those things that are pleasing to him, as we're told in Ephesians 1.11 and, of course, in many other places. God does everything in accordance with the purpose of his will. So the question becomes this. Uh, you're all familiar with the phrase, prayer changes things. For all I know, you have a plaque in your house somewhere that says that, prayer changes things. Can you tell me where in the Bible you find those words, that phrase? And if you can, you're a better man than I am, Gunga Din, because it doesn't appear anywhere in Scripture. And you say, well, is it not true? Prayer changes things. Well, let's think for a moment. Does it change God? Is the situation this, that God really has no specific plans? He's created the world, and the world now trundles along uh, after all of these many uh, millennia, uh, and God doesn't interfere. Uh, that would be the doctrine of the deists, for instance. They would say, yes, God is there. Uh, God has created the world, and now it goes along in whichever way it chooses. But God is in neutral, as they're saying, uh, but if we pray long enough, if enough, if enough of us pray, and if we pray with passion and fervency and fulfilling uh, many of the uh, qualifications of Scripture, then God will say, well, so many people are praying about this. It must be a good thing. So I'll do it. In other words, my question is, is God's will activated by our prayers? The answer to that is no. God does everything in accordance with the purpose of his will, not ours. Well, secondly, is God's will uh, altered by our prayers? Is this the situation, that God does have plans for the universe, for our planet in particular, uh, for our nation, for our lives? God does have certain plans, but if enough of us pray about it, and pray about it earnestly enough, and pray about it frequently enough, then God will say, do you know, they've got a very good idea. I think I'll change my mind. And instead of doing what I intended to do, I will do what they have earnestly prayed for me to do. Is that the situation? God's will is altered by our prayers. Well, that is certainly not so. And again, I lean on Ephesians chapter 1 and verse 11. God works out everything in accordance with the purpose of his will. And you are maybe thinking at this point, well, we are called to pray again and again in Scripture. But however much we pray, however many of us pray, however earnestly we pray, God's will is not activated 
by our prayers. It's not that God is in neutral and we uh, kick him into action, if you will, or we pray him into action. And if it's not true that God's will is altered by our prayers, then why pray? The answer is very simply this. God's will is accomplished through our prayers. God graciously calls upon us to pray for certain things that are in his good and perfect will and in response to our prayers. Not caused by them, but in response to them, uh, his will is accomplished. There's a wonderful example of that in uh, 1 Kings 18, when there had been a drought in the land for three and a half years, and the prophet Elijah prayed that it might rain. He kept sending out his servant to see if there's any sign of rain yet. And again and again, there was no sign of rain. And the seventh time the servant was sent out, he came back and said, well, there is a cloud about the size of a man's hand. And eventually the rain came and it poured rain. And in this part of the world, we're very familiar with that. Don't need to uh, elaborate on that. But here's the thing to notice. God had determined to bring rain before Elijah prayed. He caused, drew Elijah to pray for that very thing. And in answer to Elijah's prayer, but not merely because Elijah prayed, there was rain. So God's will was accomplished through the prayers of his servant. Spurgeon used to say that uh, answered prayer was a bit like homing pigeons. Pigeons were sent forth from a certain uh, location. They might travel many, many miles and would eventually come back to the very place from which they were released. And Spurgeon used to say something along those uh, lines, that God has a purpose in mind. He sends, as it were, that pigeon into the hearts of his people. They pray for it. And in response to their prayer, the prayers return to the place from which they came. And God then answers their prayers. Now, when God determines to do things, in other words, he moves his people to pray. I've had the privilege of preaching a number of times on the Isle of Lewis, and I'm always fascinated by the stories of revival in that part of our land. And you may hear people say, well, revival began when that preacher uh, visited the island and so forth, or the, the seeds of revival were here or there. But I can go further back than that and say, yes, a, a very small group of ladies on the west coast of the island prayed and in response to their prayers, but not because of their prayers. There's a, there is a distinction. Using their prayers, God did bring revival to the land. But the revival came not in the big services, not in the preaching. The revival had its root in God. But he moved those people's faithful prayer to accomplish it. The time to assess our faith as we pray uh, is not when everything goes well, but when everything goes wrong. And the most wonderful example of that, of course, is in the book of Job, in the uh, Old Testament. When he was hit, and you'll know it well, and he was a great man, a very wealthy man, and a very godly man. And yet God sent the most dreadful uh, tsunami of problems and pain and pressure to him so that in one day 
Uh, he lost all his cattle, all his livestock, uh, the index of his wealth. All of that was gone in one day. And on the very same day, lost all of his children, every one of them. They were all gone. Yet at the end of that appalling, indescribable day, God fell on his knees and worshipped the Lord. The Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And we were not wrongly translated to say that Job's, Job's expression at the end of that day was, praise the Lord. In another of the Psalms, Psalm 135, we read these words, God does whatever pleases him in the heavens and on the earth and in the seas and in their depths. Now, I don't want to misuse that uh, passage, but let me run the risk of spiritualizing it and say this. Uh, the psalmist tells us God does whatever pleases him in the heavens. Well, he does so in the heavens of our lives, when things are going well. Everything is coming up well. We're secure uh, in our families. Our health is good. Our job is good. Our income is satisfactory. Our economic situ is, situation is fine. How easy it is then to repeat Job's words and say, praise the Lord. When people meet us for a little while, uh, their first word is, how are you? Or how are things? Isn't it wonderful to be able to say, Everything's going great at the moment. Praise the Lord for that. Well, God does what pleases him in the heavens. It also says God does what pleases him on the earth. And we can uh, dare to call that, well, when things are just normal. It's, you know, another day, another week, another month, another year, and everything is, is much the same. It's a little more difficult to say, at the end of that week or month or year, well, well, praise the Lord. Everything has gone on uh, much the same. We're doing okay. But what about the next phrase? And God does whatever pleases him uh, in the seas and in all their depths. When we are in that situation, everything is not going right. It's not even going, it's not even flatlining. Things are going badly. We do have health situations. There are tensions and troubles within our families. We are economically in a different situation. We are, in fact, at the bottom of the barrel, as it were. So much more difficult then to say with Job, with Job the Lord gave, the Lord has taken away, blessed be the name of the Lord. So in all of these situations in our lives, when things are going well, when things are going pretty much normal day by day, and when things are going badly, as we would say, that is the right time to be able to say, given the grace to do so, praise the Lord. The sovereignty of God is right here in our verse. And then secondly, there is sufficiency here. No good thing. Notice exactly what the psalmist is saying. There are some good things, apparently good things, things that we would rate as good things, and properly so, that God gives to all. He gives good things to the fervently upright and to the determinedly ungodly. 
He sends the rain on the good and the evil, cause sun to shine on both the bad and the good, the evil and the good. And sometimes it does seem, if we are honest, that the ungodly, the people who would never deign to come here uh, Sunday by Sunday, then they seem to get things doing better than those of us who seek to serve the Lord are. And that's a testimony we get in Scripture in Jeremiah 12. Why does the way of the wicked prosper? Or David in Psalm 94, how long will the wicked be jubilant? Aren't there times, and just think, aren't there times when at least that thought enters your head? We read in the newspapers, we see on television, we hear on the radio, of people who are, and we may as well say so, utterly godless. Not a thought about God. Not a thought about the word of God. And they seem to be doing very well. There are millionaires in the world today. Excessively wealthy people in the world today. Never give a thought to the God we seek to worship this morning. And there are times when what creeps into our minds is what crept into Jeremiah and the psalmist David's mind. Why does the way of the wicked prosper? But there is a difference between having some good things, as we would consider them, having some good things given, and having no good thing withheld. There is a difference. You'll remember, the, many of you will, the narrative of God's people in the desert, and the story told in Numbers 11. Now the rabble that was among them had a strong craving. And the people of Israel also wept again and said, Oh, that we had meat to eat. We remember the fish we ate in Egypt that cost nothing. The cucumbers, the melons, the leeks, the onions, and the garlic. But now our strength is dried up, and there is nothing at all but this manna to look at. It's a, it's a vivid picture. You can just hear those people thinking back to the days when they were in Egypt, when they obviously had a friendly fishmonger in tow. Uh, at least they had all the food that they could wish for in those circumstances, and now nothing but manna. There was enough for everybody, but not enough for some, and that's not a contradiction. And they complained the way we are told. And then, in a sense, that was a prayer through Moses to God, when are you going to do something about this appalling situation? Just imagine, nothing but, nothing but manna. I mean, manna, morning, noon, and night. If only we could go back to Egypt and have the variety of food that we had there. So it was a prayer to God. It was a call to God to deal with that situation. And God dealt with it in a big way. He sent an airlift of protein an indescribable number of quail. Uh, and they flew over there, and nobody raised so much as a pea shooter to knock them down, instead of which they all fell down. They were three feet deep for a day's journey, whichever way they turned. They were knee-deep in protein, enough for morning, noon, and night. So now they had protein for breakfast and for lunch and for supper, and if they got midnight hunger, they could get up and get some more protein. It never seemed to go off, at least in its immediate uh, application. And hear this, 
they had now no longer any need to trust God in the dark. Now, before that, they did trust God in the dark. They went to bed on a given night, and there was no food left. And lo and behold, by the grace of God, there was sufficient in the morning for them all. They had no need to trust God in the dark. They got up in the morning, and they were knee-deep in quail. It was all there, right at their hand. No need to trust God in the dark any any further. But before a month was out, they were hit by terrible plague. And they died, we may say, like flies. They got what they wanted, but it wasn't what what they needed. And David later testified, God gave them what they asked but sent a wasting disease among them. They called the name of the place Tiberoth, Kibroth Hatava, the place or the graves of craving. They literally ate themselves to death. They complained at what God was giving them, didn't think much of it, prayed earnestly that God would send more, and he did big time, and they died as they ate it. The question, of course, to us is this. Are we prepared to allow God to determine what would be best for us? Or are we restlessly pursuing what we want and then adding a prayer that God would bless our choice of what we need? Or are we, in true faith, determined to thank God for what he does send to us and to live in the good of us. Now, God may withhold some things that everybody in the world, and we ourselves too, would call good. God may withhold prosperity from us. God may withhold success for us in our uh, work, if we're still of a working age. God may withhold wealth from us, God may withhold good health from us. God may withhold a life partner from us. These are all good things. But they are not the best things for us unless they are what God wants to give us and to allow us. Are we prepared to commit our way to him regardless knowing this, that nothing which is ultimately for his eternal glory and for our eternal good, he will not withhold any of those things from us. Let me say again, he may withhold things that on the surface, and in our thinking it would be more than on the surface, for our good. Health and wealth and economically sound and a life partner and all of these things, success in whatever it is we're doing, in our lives or in our ministry. God may withhold those things from us, but are we prepared to say, yes, but there is nothing that is ultimately for his glory and for our good that he will withhold from us if we are prepared to leave the matter with him. We're all familiar, I imagine, uh, with Paul's great word in Romans 8, no good thing. Will he withhold, we are told in the psalm? We know that all things work together for the good of those who love God, who are called according to his purpose. 
And it's not always what, uh, what we expect or what we hope or what we think. I was uh, contemplating again this morning in my study the story of the Apostle Paul in uh, 2 Corinthians 12. To keep me from becoming conceited, because of these surpassingly great revelations, there was given to me a thorn in my flesh, the messenger of Satan, to torment me. And listen to this. Three times I pleaded with the Lord to take it away from me. Well, isn't that the most natural thing? We have a serious uh, physical condition. We are not told what the thorn in the flesh was. All kinds of interesting speculation as to what that might be. I've even heard, I hope, uh, humorously, suggesting that it was a nagging wife. But I wouldn't know that condition. I have to say that now because Pam is here. I don't know that condition. And I'm sure it wasn't that. But we know situations when things are very, very difficult for us. And we would pray. Naturally, we would pray. And Paul says, I prayed three times. If we were prayer partners of the Apostle Paul, I'm guessing we would have prayed more than three times if he had sent out a newsletter saying, look, I got this very serious, and now let's assume it was a serious physical condition, and I would earnestly ask for your prayers. And you would pray for it. Of course you would, day after day. And we're told this. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you. My power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, says Paul, I will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses so that Christ's power may rest on me. That is why, for Christ's sake, I delight in weaknesses, in insults, in hardships, in persecutions, in difficulties. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Notice the two reasons. I think this particular chapter is a massively important chapter to each one of us. Paul gives us reasons why God did not remove, in answer to prayer, whatever that thorn in the flesh was. And Paul gives us two reasons. First, to keep me from becoming conceited. Or as the uh, uh, New Standard Version says, uh, too elated. And the second was that the power of Christ may rest upon me. He accepted the thorn because he saw the throne. And his testimony, the Apostle Paul's testimony, was not God has healed me and will heal you. Uh, if you've had the misfortune to listen at length to some of the... Uh, American so-called evangelists on television, you will know the appalling uh, things they say about healing and the way to get it. You know, send me $58 a month for 12 months. Commit yourself to that, and I will pray for you, and the most great, the most wonderful blessing will come into your life, and so forth. Paul's testimony was, I prayed, and God did not heal me. That is my testimony, and it has been for my good. It saves me from being conceited. And secondly, it will be obvious to all that God is blessing my ministry in spite of my weakness, so they'll give glory to God for the blessing that there is. A number of years ago, I was preaching in uh, Oklahoma. I was met at the airport by the, the pastor. I was due to be sharing a week's ministry with uh, a Baptist preacher, I'd never met him before, but I'd heard of him. 
uh, called Dr. E.F. Halleck. He had a great reputation in the denomination with which I was working at that time, the Southern Baptist Convention, and especially on the ministry of prayer. And really, I couldn't wait. I remember as the plane was landing, I thought, this is going to be great for me. I'm going to uh, share a week with E.F. Halleck, uh, and uh, I'm going to learn so much from him. When I landed, the pastor said, I've got some news for you. Uh, Dr. Halleck is very unwell and will not be here for the week, so you have all the preaching to do. Well, I uh, accepted that responsibility, but at some point said, where does he have Halleck live? Well, he's not, he doesn't live very far from here. I said, look, would we be able to go and see him one day? And so they said, of course. So they drove me not really very many miles to uh, the house of Dr. E.F. Halleck, and I can still recall the sight of that white frame house. And then went in the front door, and there was E.F. Halleck, Preacher Halleck, they called him, uh, sitting in a rocking chair in his lounge, looking thin and pale and really very sick. And indeed he was. He had bone cancer and was clearly in a very low situation. And uh, I remember him telling me so clearly, he said, the day was when I came to the Lord and said, Father, won't you give me the gift of healing? And here are his words. He said, and God said to me, no, preacher Halleck. I thought well, that was a delightful touch that God used the name by which he was popularly named, known in those circles. No, preacher Halleck, I won't give you healing. I'm going to give you something better, the stewardship of suffering. I'm going to give you the stewardship of suffering. So the suffering that you are enduring will be taken by me and used through you to the blessing of many people. And all I know is that there was a preacher from England that day sitting on the floor listening to Preacher Halleck. And yes, I was hugely blessed by him. And perhaps better and more than if he had been preaching that particular week. I have a friend uh, in Guernsey who has suffered really dreadful illness for certainly nearly 60 years that I know. And Pam and I visited her within the last uh, two years. Never or barely ever out of pain. And yet her testimony, the clarity of her faith, uh, her willingness to praise God for all that she is going through is something that has made a huge impression on me. So there is sufficiency here. God's power is sufficient to remove whatever it is that we would consider painful and wrong and difficult and dark. God has the power to remove all of those things. He also has the right to allow them to remain. Whatever the burden and pain and pressure and deprivation and hardship is, he has the power and, and the wisdom to allow those to remain and to prove to us that his grace is sufficient to sustain us. So there's sovereignty here, and there is sufficiency here, and finally, there is simplicity here. We're looking at a state of blessing and grace to which all Christians should uh, aspire. Uh, there is sovereignty here. No good thing will God withhold. And no good thing, nothing that is ultimately 
for his glory and for our good will he withhold. But from whom? What's the key that opens that door? Well, it's certainly not knowledge. God doesn't promise uh, his best to those who know the most. There is something wonderfully liberating and powerful about good doctrine and keeping to it and rejoicing in it. But it's not synonymous with the grace of God. Uh, The key is not orthodoxy, it is obedience. Those whose walk is blameless or those who walk uprightly. John 13, Jesus says, now that you know these things, you will be blessed if you do them. You won't be blessed if you, if you merely know those things. You will be blessed if you do them. Let me, as I close, just uh, split that obedience, if you will, into these two factors. And the first is practical obedience. In other words, obedience to what it is that God has revealed to us. God will bring great blessing uh, to Christians to whom God has revealed a certain course of action or a certain truth, a certain attitude they ought to have, if, if the Christian responds to that and does what God has revealed to them as being his good and pleasing and perfect will, then the blessing of God will follow. Is there any issue in your life where you are holding out against God? Maybe on the matter of relationships. Maybe on the matter of morality. Maybe on the matter of stewardship. Maybe on the matter of your devotional life. Maybe a matter of honesty. If you are holding out against God, God God has revealed. You don't have to guess what would God have me do in this. God has revealed in his word principles that clearly you should earnestly follow in your life. Practical obedience. And the second I would call spiritual obedience. In other words, our honest willingness to submit to his unrevealed will. It seems to me that that is uh, expressed in what we call the Lord's Prayer. Your will, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Your will be done in my life. Father, whatever it is that you want my life to be, whatever it is in my life you would like me to do or give or pursue, I'm willing that that should be the case. That is what I call spiritual obedience. We don't know exactly and in detail what that might be, but we are willing. We are laying our lives before the Lord and saying, here I am, uh, and I am willing that whatever you choose for my life, I'm willing, without knowing at this point what it is, I am, as far as I know my own heart, I am willing to accept that, to commit myself to it, to rejoice in it and to praise you for the outcome. And so I bring to you this morning this word, my text. The Lord is a sun and shield and no good thing, nothing ultimately for his glory and for your earthly good, no good thing will he withhold from those who walk uprightly. May God give us the grace to walk uprightly and to lay hold uh, in faith and in confidence on the promise of his eternal word.
May God bless his word to each one of us this morning.